Welcome to episode 59 of the Rapid Change Matters podcast, a conversation with top NLP and hypnosis trainer, Dr. Will Horton. My name's Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm chatting with top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I've got big news. Rapid Changeworks is now running live training events, and you can check out the latest events coming up by visiting rapidchange.works, where you can also download a free, quick-to-read PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, along with all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today's guest is one of the world's top NLP and hypnosis trainers. He is also a licensed psychologist, certified alcohol and drug counselor, and master hypnotist. He was also one of the few non-law enforcement people to be asked to attend the FBI crisis hostage negotiation course at the FBI Academy. As the founder of the National Federation of NLP and the creator of several best-selling home study courses on this topic, he's also someone who has used the skills for himself to overcome and leave behind a number of personal barriers. This is someone who doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Will Horton. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a bit awkward. Was I supposed to put it like the, uh, the audio recording of yeah. hordes ah, of people ooh, clapping? And, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, note to self, edited on after. <laughs> Seriously, honestly, it's it's great to have you. Uh, absolutely brilliant to have you here. I, I'm really hoping we can jump straight in. And, and could you tell okay. uh, me and our listeners a little bit about, um, well, who you are, what you do, but really we're curious about the origin story, how you got started in all of this. Well, <clears throat> my name is Will Horton. I call Dr. Will Horton. Everybody calls me Dr. Will. Licensed psychologist, uh, master uh, addictions counselor, and I've been in the NLP and the hypnosis world for uh, <coughs> longer than you've been alive. Um, but, you know, how I got started, like a lot of people, I always tell the very, my first experience with hypnosis was when I was a kid, I saw a movie called uh, The Manchurian Candidate, and I loved it. Right. It's like, this is so cool. And there was another movie. Very few people remember called the hot rock where there was a hypnosis induction in it, where they're in an elevator and they're going uh, up, up an elevator and every floor they go up is like one. Isn't that interesting Two, you find your, it was brilliant. Right. And I found it fascinating. So I went and found a book because this was many, many years ago. And the book was called hypnosis for change. And I got it. I read it. And I hypnotized a couple people, scared the hell out of me, right? Because it worked so well. And I really didn't follow it up. I was a teenager playing football, American football, not, not, not English football. And, you know, the kind you get brain damage from here in America. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that's probably happening to me now. And, and so, you know, but I did make some self-hypnosis 
cassette tapes. Well, actually, first started on a little reel-to-reel and then went to cassette tapes. So I was fascinated, but it got put by the wayside. So fast forward uh, after um, being in the military and uh, a short acting career that addictions took away, uh, I couldn't quite sober up. And then I'd been through treatment and I was exposed to this, some of the NLP and the hypnosis techniques that made it all make sense. The 12-step work, the, 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 the way that they were doing things. And I was able to put the addiction in the rearview mirror and, and get my life back on track. And so it started me passionate about NLP and hypnosis and NLP first, because this was the early, early 19, late seventies, early 1980s. It was easier to find NLP stuff than it was hypnosis. There were no hypnosis schools and all the old guys in hypnosis started by reading a book and just hypnotizing people. Gil Boyne, uh, uh, going back, uh, Orman McGill, there was no training. You just started doing it. So, Uh, So I took the NLP and then I stumbled back into hypnosis and it's been a process ever since. And I couldn't understand after getting trained in that. And then because the, the uh, being a a veteran with uh, the government paid for me to go back to school, I couldn't understand why this stuff was not used in psychology. And so that's kind of my short story. So, so why is it as this journey led you to any insights as to why it's not more widely used in psychology? Well, I think it's because every, every college has a therapeutic approach, whether it's uh, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral, which is huge right now, or rational emotive behavior therapy. Uh, you still have a few analyticals like Freudian schools, young, you know, but whatever school you happen to go to, um, like if it's cognitive behavioral, like Indiana University, you will not get a teaching position if you are not a cognitive behavioral therapist that toes the line. They're not going to bring in somebody who goes, that's bullshit. I'm going to teach you this, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't even get in the pipeline and college is there, you know, in, in Europe and in Canada and America, pretty much similar. You know, your goal, if you become a college professor is to get tenure, to get tenure, you have to be part of the bureaucracy. And so that's why, you know, so when you come in with hypnosis and the NLP skills, it, it doesn't tow the company line. That's basically, I think, it. You see yeah. it a little bit here in America, and I'm not sure about how it works in England and, and, and Europe, but in America, we have schools that offer PsyD degrees. That's what I have, a psychology doctorate, which is more of a professional degree. You see some hypnosis in NLP in those schools because they don't seem to have one theoretical orientation, you know, and and so it's kind of interesting, but what I've noticed in the psych world is after a psychologist graduates, becomes licensed, gets out in the real world, usually after about five years, they start dropping a lot of the theoretical orientation going, I need to find stuff that works. Mm-hmm. And then they take a little bit of cognitive CBT, they take a little bit of uh, rational emotive and maybe add in the hypnosis and NLP and they find their own way. So, but that's why I think we don't see it is, and so then, and, and then not to go on too much, but then because of that, there's no, there's very little, re- well, there's more and more now, but there's not as much research because the school's not going to do it if it doesn't tow their company line. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. And, and I'm curious about something else, which you, you kind of touched on, which is, you know, I, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say the phrase back in the day, but back in the day, you know, when you're there and you're starting out and you're reading these books, because there wasn't YouTube, because there wasn't this you know, huge amount of material and training videos and courses galore all over the place, 
you know, there was this uh, kind of read it and go and do it, like practice and see. Do you think that the amount of stuff that there is available in one sense is doing people a disservice because it means that they can't go and they don't go and find stuff out for themselves in the same way? Yeah, I think, I th- oh yeah, horribly. Yes, because what happens, and I see it all the time, you know, I'd start talking to somebody, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with NLP. Oh, where were you trained? I watched a couple of videos, mm-hmm. right? That's like, that's like playing, that's like me saying I can play soccer like Ronaldo because I've seen a game on TV, you know? Yeah. No, it's like, ah, because there's so <laughs> much information and then people fall into that. They'll watch a video and go, I got that. They'll never practice it. And they go, I got that. You know? And they never practice the skills. The old, like you say, back in the day, it was see one, do one, teach one. It's like the medical model, how they teach doctors. You, mm-hmm. you know, you watch the guy demo it. You got in your little group. You did it. Very importantly, you had it done to you. Right? You didn't just do it. And then you had it done to you. So you experienced both sides and then you, watch someone else do it again. So it was a, it was a deeper approach. And I, I can't stress enough. You had someone do it for you. The biggest disconnect in our field of hypnosis and NLP are these asshole trainers that never do it. Yeah. They stand up there and they talk about meta states or they talk about this crap that is all theoretical and you could tell they've never done it. You know, they'll do a whole weight loss or smoking protocol. And if you really get to know them, go, how often have you done it? Well, not really, but in theory, right? And that just drives me crazy, right? So they need to, yeah, you know, my advice to people, if they're, make sure the trainer you got actually sees real life clients, not just people in seminars. Because when people come to a seminar and I'm teaching, it's easier to get you to change because it's called the power of the platform. Mm-hmm. And and then it seems magical, but can you take what I'm teaching you and go do it? And my challenge to myself is I work with people who don't know who I am. They don't, they don't know I've written a couple of books or I've got a little bit of a name. They're like, can you help me stop smoking, lose weight, improve my golf game, whatever, dude, I don't. And, and I think what I see is trainers that are full of shit. Since you said we could talk, they mm. don't want to test their skills in the real world. They're terrified yeah. to test their skills in the real world. If I could give my dear friend, let me do my, my dear friend, Tony Robbins. I know you're not video, but you can see what <laughs> I'm doing. Yeah. My it's dear a, friend. It's a Tony great Robbins, nonverbal gesture, ladies and right? gentlemen. My, my, uh, up until I think about 15 years ago, because of the way his business changed, he, mm. Mr. Mr. Robbins was notorious to just start doing change work with people who really didn't know who he is, which is pretty hard since he's six foot seven and probably, you know, he's well known, but we forget in our field, we think everybody knows who Tony Robbins is. 94% of the world's population have no idea who he is, Mm -hmm. you know, but he would help people at an airport. He would have people bring people to him that he, he would tell them, make sure they don't know who I am. And then he would like work with them and see if he, if his skills still work. I, I absolutely love that. And, and it's a, t- a subject that we've talked about sometimes on this podcast, which is the difference between what goes on in the training room and the difference and what goes on in the, in inverted commas, the real world with real clients. And sometimes you get students, they go to trainings and they're sitting in their, the room, they watch the amazing, in inverted commas, trainer do a demo. And they go, oh, well, that, that, that's how it is. But of course, they forget the context. That person's paid to be there. The power of the platform. I love that expression. You know, it explains so much. 
Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yeah, and you know, yes, the power. It's like when you see these ministers that knock people out on the stage. It's the power of the platform. Yeah. So I think what we all need, isn't it, is to have a big platform. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there we go. That's uh, that, that, that. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Send twenty nine ninety five for the video on. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so talking about some of the misnomers that are a bit, are out there uh, and maybe being perpetuated by the the people who are suffering from premature closure, having watched one YouTube clip. Um, but you mentioned when I asked you, what's the worst advice currently being given out within the world of change work during the rapid fire round? That matching has to be subtle. But could, could you elaborate on, on why you think that's that's not a doesn't have legs, as it were? When I hear that, and I get into good orient, uh, good theoretical uh, uh, discussions on this, I want to throw shit at whoever says it, because subtle equals ineffective, in my opinion. In the real world, when two people are in rapport, they mirror match naturally. There is no thought. There is no, oh, I'm going to be subtle. I'm going to wait 4.5 seconds before I scratch my chin like you're doing right now. No, Mm -hmm. it's instantaneous and it's blatant. And I think it's, again, it's trainers that don't, A, trust the material that they're teaching because they're not doing it in real time. They think, oh, you know, and it's got to be subtle, right? And it's the opposite. Again, when you go, you know, if you run out and you go to Starbucks or you weren't run into a pub over there and you see people when they're talking and they're in rapport, there is no subtleness about how they're, they're doing it. You know, if you're in New York city and you see two people talking and you know, it's New York. So they're bah, 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 there. It's not subtle. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's where, and again, when I teach that, and, and usually it boils down to people go, yeah, but I feel uncomfortable doing it. I'm always like, your, your feelings are irrelevant in this situation. If I'm trying to target you, Mr. Howard, my goal is to mirror match you, you know, to do what you're doing, right? And, and it just, it's easy. And there's a trick, and very few people teach it because I came up with it. This one I'll start claiming, which is, if I'm going to go meet a new person, I've never met you, Howard, and we're about to meet, and I need to mirror match you and be comfortable. What if I close my eyes right before I meet you and think about my buddy Bill, who I've known for 35 years? I could one of the few people I would tell anything in the world to, and I and I kind of get into that energy like like Bill's there, and I kind of transpose him over you. And so when I start talking to you, it's like I'm talking to Bill. I think it does two things. One is it loosens my neurology, opens up my energy pattern, which is not metaphysical. It actually changes my aura, which lowers your, you Star Trek metaphors, it lowers your shields because my shields are down. And then if I start mirror matching, I'm presenting that, that mirror image to your neurology where it's suddenly comfort, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, because most trainers don't know about that, take a moment, step into the feeling of comfort with someone you're already comfortable with and use that when you start marrying and matching. It takes away that glitch because when I see Bill or now if I say you somewhere, there's going to be no hesitation on how we mirror and match and picking up the language pattern. So that's the most horrible advice I think people still mm-hmm. get in NLP and, and now in hypnosis training. I think that's uh, absolutely on the money. Absolutely on the money. Um, I, I've seen so many people struggling to build rapport by doing mir- mirroring and matching because you can see they're in their head. They're in their head going, aha, I need to move my head 43 degrees to the left, you know, and 
they're not then present with the other person. Right. And, and I think if you do that thing where you step into the comfort zone, your neurology, it takes your thinking out of it. So your neurology just <clears> drops into you. It's part of our tribal. It's, it's in your DNA. What kept you alive for millions of years where you had to instantly size up someone about, can I trust you? Yeah. Right. This is neurological. And if I can trust you, I'll lower my energy so I can just put my peripheral vision out because there's a bear about to kill us. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. we got to stay alive. Right. And so. So, yeah. So it's based in neurology. So I love that idea that it's not it's not even a technique. It's it's a state that you go into where you unconsciously do this stuff because you're that's how we're wired up. Right. And, and, and use the sports analogy when you're watching a soccer game, uh, football, as you call it, football over here, but it's the same thing. They run off the field. Let's say there's a tough play and that, 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 and they're stressed out. They run off the field. What happens? They instantly get surrounded by their teammates, right? Who pat them on the back, hug them, do whatever they do. And you, and w if you watch that, tell me that people are being subtle. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the herd. It's the tribe. It's what's kept us alive for a million years. That's in your DNA. So where does it come from, this idea that, that matching has to be subtle? And I have come across it. I remember being at a, an NLP training early on in my, my, my training and uh, a guy started tapping his finger against his chest very gently. Like this, I could barely see it. And he said, I now have you in rapport, he said to me. And I laughed. I was like, what, what is this? Well, it, I think it's, it, I think, A, again, it boils down to trainers that really don't do it. I think there's a lot that, come on, I'll be honest. What, what I'm going to say next pisses people off. A lot of people in our world of hypnosis and NLP are one small step from a goddamn used car salesman, right? And, the, and I think you see people that become trainers because they think it's easier than working with clients. So they, they didn't do the footwork of learning the techniques and so it's natural. And so then, and, and, and underneath it all, they want to appear smart. They want to make this technique look hard because then you're going to have more respect for me because I'm doing something that's hard, mm -hmm. you know, and most NLP and hypnosis trainers, the best, one of the best advice I ever got early on was hypnotists fall in love with their own voice. People aren't paying you to talk. They're paying you to change. End of story. If you can do it in 10 words, in 10 seconds, people are just as happy as you. It, 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 if you give an hour-long dissertation with beautiful words. They want to change. Mm -hmm. and I, I can't so remember that, who it was, but someone used the phrase uh, uh, when they heard a hypnotist going on for too long, saying he just likes verbal masturbation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, I think there is some truth uh, to that for sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, we talked about kind of the, some of the mechanisms around matching and mirroring, and but that does point to having rapport. What, what do you define as rapport, uh, and is it important for change? Um, I think it's important. In it, it, yes, it's important for change because it it when you're in rapport, it's all about the feeling of comfort. People make the mistake sometimes of thinking it's about people liking me or getting to be friendly. No, it's about trust. You know, it's about like being in that tribe. And when you have that feeling of trust, especially if you really don't know the other person yet, like, like a therapist, we're just getting to know each other. If I have a feeling of trust, I may actually tell you the shit you need to know. Not what I think you need to know, 
but what, what, what you need to know. And so it lowers that. So that's why rapport is so important. And also, if you're in rapport, if my energy opens up and I'm in rapport with you, I'll catch that change that you're starting to feel uncomfortable before you, before you verbalize it. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see the Ericsons and the uh, uh, Fritz Pearls when he was alive and all that. When they'd be doing stuff, they'd be talking. And, you know, you also see very good interrogators Police interrogators do it. Well, they'll be talking, asking questions, and they just know they've hit a subject, right? Because of that nonverbal response where because I'm mirror matching you and you move and I move with you and you go, that's weird. Ah, this is important. And then you watch the interrogators. That's when they know to take off. So mm. it's, it, it's about that. It's, it's, it's also if, when you're in rapport, then you're, you're catching those changes yourself. So, so just talking about that for a second, are there other things that you could talk about from your time uh, with the FBI hostage negotiation course that you could share with us that might be interesting? That, or, or if you told us, would you have to kill us? No, no. Uh, it's, it's a lot different than people think. It's all about, uh, it's all about relationship. You know, uh, The bad thing about going there, I can't watch most TV shows where it has to do with a negotiator because <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, and, you know, and then people go, well, why don't they use guys like with NLP and hypnosis or, or tra- trained mental health professionals to be negotiators? Well, there's one reason. Here, here's an aside. <clears throat> what, if there's negotiation, you've got hostages where you are, right? And I got you on the phone and we're talking. The scene commander, which is never the negotiator. The negotiator is interchangeable. They also change negotiators every couple hours uh, so that you don't get counter-transference. But one of my jobs might be, as I got you on the phone, the scene commander might come up and go, hey, I need you to get him to walk over and count the people again, okay? And so you use your rapport skills to, hey, Joe, Joe, I know it's stressful, but look, they're bugging me over here. I need you to get up, walk over, and count the people again. Okay, fine. So you got rapport. He goes, okay. So he stands up. He starts counting the people. You hear the gunshot. He goes down. What I just did was walk him into a sniper shot. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're a licensed mental health professional, that's not exactly kosher for you. First, do no harm. You know, <laughs> you know, all, in England here, it's like that's your job is. And that's a different mindset to get somebody to stand. And I know that when he tells me, OK, I'll get him to go do it. That, and I'm not going to warn him. Oh, by the way, they're going to blow your freaking head off. Right. But they've decided that they got a clear shot. If I can get you to stand by the window so you're counting the people. Boom. Right. Now, it makes sense to me, you know, as, as being in the military, it's like, okay, good. I would probably do it. But if I did it as a licensed mental health professional, would not be very copacetic, right? So there's that. But it's all about the relationship. And it's all about getting the person to talk and keeping mm-hmm. them online. And you talk about people that are very good at what they do. It's people that are trained in that. Because it literally is life and death. A lot of times therapists act like, oh, what I do is life and death. No, you got fat women trying to lose weight, son. That's your big problem. You're don't, you don't have a desperate, out-of-work drug addict holding weapons on children. Mm-hmm. Right? So if their skills don't work, so and they love this stuff. They love hypnosis and language patterns and you know, keeping the cadence and, and wearing down the person psychologically. So they just want to give up. 
right? And that is it. And and we it it's brilliant. You know, it's a very short shelf life, mm-hmm. but for negotiators because it's such a stressful thing to do. Yeah. And uh, and also too, here's the other fun thing. The fur it was a two week course when I did it. They they start like this. This whole course is about communication. This whole course is about listening. The whole first week was active listening skills. You that's what you worked on, uh, and you also did a lot of role play, which I I love because it really shows that we need to do more role play in our in our trainings. And you know they do it down to they built cities by the way. So but r- listening, 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 and then they made the statement. They go according to their research, and the FBI does a lot of research. There's a few professions that are horrible listeners. Police officers are horrible listeners. Medical doctors, horrible listeners. Teachers, horrible listeners. Parents, horrible listeners. And everybody's in the audience going, whoa, whoa, because, you know, like most people in the room were police officers or agents. And a couple of them were also mental health. And they're like looking and they go, because every one of those professions, when you're in it for a while, you're a problem solver. That's your main job. And you actually get rewarded for solving the problems quickly. When a police officer shows up here in America, England, anywhere, their job is to figure out, take charge of the situation, fix it, and move on. Mm. You know, if you get carjacked, you don't want the guy going, we need to look at the deep socioeconomic impact of why this person felt like they had to carjack you. No, you want them to show up, take charge, and fix the problem. Same with, and medical doctors in all over the world now, because they use Western-based training, it's assess as quickly as possible, treat as quickly as possible, next patient, right? So they don't listen. Yeah, and, and so the whole training was to get people to turn that off. Same with parents. If you've had kids, you know, it's like you don't really listen. You, two, two sentences into whatever your kid's telling you, you've assessed the situation and moved on, right? And so they spent the whole first week getting you to practice just listening, just listening. And again, as a mental health professional, as an NLP person and that, after about 500 clients, you've heard a lot of shit. Come on, right? And two sentences in, you're like, okay, honey, it's not about the food. It's about you hate your fucking husband and you're eating so he doesn't want to touch you, right? Yada, yada. So you, so you quit listening. And you start trying to assess the situation. And, and the minute you quit listening, maybe she's going to tell you the one or two things you really need to know, you know, mm-hmm. that she was also raped as a, as, you know, as a teenager, you know, by one of her teachers. Yeah. So it's really not, you know, it's like interesting stuff, but it's all about listening. That's what I got out of the course. It's absolutely fascinating. And it's not, it's not what I thought it would be. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting to hear just a little slither of, of what that's all about. Well, and the other cool thing is, like you see shows like Criminal Minds and all this, mm. it's like negotiators and, and, and I got to hang around with the profilers and that. If there's one group of people you do not want to have weapons, it's negotiators and profilers, right? Because usually they're nerds. <laughs> they're like, you know, no, no. You know, so you always see the TV show, they're kicking indoors, they're doing this. No, no, they, they're much happier doing what we're doing right now. No, I'll mm-hmm. just be on the phone talking to the guy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I'm slightly upset, though, that the negotiator is not based in reality that I thought it was. It's ruined my favorite film. Thank you, Dr. Will. Um, <laughs> now you're going to tell me Santa Claus doesn't exist. God Sorry? Damn. You what? <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we might have to cut this one short, ladies and gentlemen. I'm, 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 I'm going to have to go into years of therapy now. Um, yes, ab reaction. Yes, okay. Yeah. So it's on, a, on, a, on a totally different note, this is the Rapid Change Matters podcast. And as you know, I, I believe, and I got started on this mission because I think there's a lot of people out there who still believe that change takes a long time uh, or that it revolves around sort of deep analysis or reliving past trauma and things like that. Um, how would you define rapid? What's rapid change for you? Um, that's a good question. You know, uh, uh, it doesn't have to be instantaneous, even though many changes are. It's like you get that epiphany. Something goes, that's it. I'm done. And and you really are. Maybe you stop smoking. Maybe you quit drinking. Maybe you change your diet just like that. But usually rapid change to me is where it happens on the inside and comes outward. So something happens like that epiphany. And it might be a more of a gradual epiphany where it's like this isn't working. You know, what I'm doing is not working. And then you find a thing that works and then it's quickly. And usually, it, you know, it, no more than a few weeks, you can, you can really make deep changes, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and I know people are still looking for it. One of the best-selling books a couple of years ago was a book called uh, Habits by, uh, oh, what was his name? Uh, I can pick, uh, oh, I can't think of it. But it's a great book, breaks down the neuro, neurological basis of habits and all this. And uh, it begins with an H. It's right on the tip of my tongue. And, but even he says at the end, you know, most of you probably picked this book up thinking there's, okay, this is how habits work. Here's a quick way to change a habit. And he points out for most people, that's not true. Right? Because we think insight will give us change. One of the bad things Freud kind of postulated and put out there that became thing is somehow getting insight will solve your problem. And coming from the alcohol and drug world, I could tell you, I know people that focus on why did I drink? Why did I drink? Why did I get take heroin? Whatever it was. Why, why, why? So they go into years of therapy and they figure out why. So they're now they're insightful drunks or they're insightful heroin addicts. They don't stop, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the difference between sometimes when you fix those kind of problems, once you get the problem changed, why you did it can be irrelevant, you know? And that's one of the things I loved about NLP. And when I first was exposed to it, was when I heard, maybe it was Bandler, maybe it was Grinder, maybe it was David Gordon, who, very impactful to me, say, sometimes why is not important. Fix the problem, and the why will go away. Yeah. Where you get Freudian trained, or even in psychology and social work, we've got to figure out why. And this is where I clash with the regressionists, because there may be no one why. It could be a series of whys, right? I, I've come across this a number of times before where, you know, people may go to a, for some kind of regression. It doesn't work, but the only suggestion they took on board was that there must be one cause and that they haven't found it. So now they're going, well, now I'm going to be screwed forever because I, I can't find the one thing they've bought into that, that, that idea. And that's, I, I think, I think it has its place. I think there are times where it's useful, but I think it's, um, I, I wouldn't claim it's the be-all or end-all or one panacea to, to rule them all. Well, and I think this ties into probably the second worst thing people are taught in our field of NLP, hypnosis, and even psychology. Somehow, well, your mind remembers everything. It's like a big computer. It's like a file cabinet. No! 
No, no. Is that a yes? A, your mind does not remember everything. That that that's been proven. B, it what it does remember. Uh, people that study memory now will tell you it. It's not a file cabinet, and it's not like a computer disk. It's more like a spider web. So this little memory gets hooked over here in the web, and then it and it, if it gets shaken, so something activates this memory, it it may activate something down here. You know, it's like it's scattered. And so when you get one of the problems with regression is they think it's more like a file cabinet, very linear, and it's not. You know, you have things out of time, mm -hmm. right? Everything is is based in how your brain is sorting information and something good. I can remember graduating boot camp in the army and it's that memory's right here. You know, it literally happened 40 something years ago. Was it that long ago? Yeah. And right. And it's right here. The birth of my daughter, who's your age, is right there. It should be 37 years back there. It's not. It's right here. Right. So it's that's the way your memory really works. And I think people get stuck in thinking, no, it's very linear. No, it's this reminds you of this reminds you of this. And it's also why, you know, how your brain actually works is fascinating. And that's what I'm really into. That's, that's very cool. So could, could you share with us a couple of uh, real examples where you work with people, they've come in, they've, uh, they've had a, an issue and very quickly, rapidly it's 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 gone and it's lasted yeah well um one is when i had my last big clinic going it was suncoast hypnosis um here in florida and i did a lot of weight loss because a everybody's fat right that's a generality but a great majority of the population in america is fat just like in england and so it's easy to pick the low-hanging fruit and I also always wonder why hypnotists don't like working with weight loss. And I, I was here at conference. I don't work with weight loss. I work with real issues. Well, when I hear that statement, I'm thinking in my head, you're an incompetent hypnotist. And you're afraid of weight loss because it's measurable. You know, a lot of therapists in the psych world don't like working with weight loss because it's measurable. Either you lose weight or you don't. It's not, oh, I just feel better, right? So, uh, so I've had a lot of clients come in and uh, and I love it when, you know, they know what to do. They're not doing it, right? And uh, I always say too, like if I'm around a conference talking to hypnotists and I always say, well, when you're doing a weight loss program, how, what do you how much nutrition do you talk about? And the one thing I found after 35 years of doing this, the more a hypnotist talks about nutrition, the less effective their weight loss program is, right? And again, I think it's people that don't trust the technology. Maybe they haven't done it for themselves, right? And, or, you know, really seen the result. And I've, uh, so when I see someone, when I have a client and I had a, a bunch of them, but it always, they become kind of interchangeable, but they've been overweight, men and women, for 20 or 30 years, usually since high school. And you get them on the path and they hit their goal weight, right? Or get really close to their goal weight. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most rewarding things I've ever seen. It's, 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 it's almost as powerful as when I get someone to sober up or get off heroin or something like that, right? That too, it's life changing. But people don't realize how powerful, if you've been fat for a long time, how powerful it is 
to be thin and also how abnormal it is in our culture to do that. So one of the, the, the challenges that I, I think some uh, therapists or change workers face as opposed with, with weight loss, as opposed to something like a fear or a phobia is that, you know, with a fear or a phobia, let's say uh, they know they don't feel the same way. It's done. And then they can get the immediate results. Whereas with the weight loss, they could go, oh, I, I do feel different. But hey, I look in the mirror and in and of that moment, I'm still look the same. And so it, it's, it's maybe more challenging to kind of keep that momentum. So how, how do you kind of safeguard against them derailing because well, the immediate the things, results are not visible? Well, one, one of the things I stole from medicine, right, which is if you get a medical test, Mr. Howard, a blood test, a really good doctor will say, you know, we don't want to like flip out on this blood test because it's a snapshot in time, right? Maybe you're PSA for men is a little high today, right? You know, uh, uh, what's that called? Prostate specific antigen, right? Hmm. Does that mean now a lot of doctors, oh my God, we got to get you in for a fucking biopsy, you know? And, but a good doctor will say it's a snapshot in time. It's a snapshot in time. And so they'll do more tests. They'll do more tests. They'll, they'll track the information. And, um, and so for us, you know, they'll take several blood tests and then they'll say, okay, there's a pattern, this and this. So when I get a weight loss client and they're looking in the mirror and they're hundred pounds overweight, I say, just realize this is a snapshot in time. It didn't happen instantaneously. It took a time for you to get there, right? If, if you were looking in the mirror and you saw your 15 year old self, that you wasn't this weight, yada, yada, yada. So when you're looking in the mirror, it's a snapshot in time. And can you imagine looking through the mirror that a year from now, what are you going to look like if you follow the, the, do you keep going forward and don't keep looking backwards? When you look in that mirror, you're actually looking through it to the future you. And, mm, nice. and it's a snapshot in time. And yes, okay, you fucked up. That's what got your ass fat. But now when you look through, and that's how I talk to clients. Now when you look through the mirror, a year from now, if you just keep these small changes, you will get to your goal weight. So, so I think that's really cool. And also just to, to pick up on a little something you said there, which is you went, and that's how I talk to clients. I, I see a number of change workers, myself included, that's not afraid of being and using language in a very direct manner. So right. why, why do you use that kind of language with clients? Why are you okay to do that? Well, because A, if you've ever had an issue in your own life, especially let's use weight, you don't look in the window mirror and go, I have a weight issue. You know, I'm getting a little, uh, my height weight proportion is not, no, you look in the mirror and go, I'm a fat fucking disgusting pig. What the fuck happened to me? I mean, this is the way you talk to yourself. It's like, what is wrong? That's, and so if you've if you got enough rapport and you say, like I always tell people, how long you've been fat, right? Not are you overweight? You're, you're, rep, you're, you're mirroring their inner dialogue. You know, not, they're not Oprah Winfrey thinking about weight issues, for God's sakes. They're looking in the mirror and going, what happened to the high school prom queen? Yeah. Right? And, and so... Excuse me. So, so yeah. So you're just mirroring their language, and 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 you're as long as you don't do it vindictively, you know, you're just saying, you know, how long you've been fat? How's being fat caused you problems, right? And it also makes it more real. Um, 
So if people are listening to, to this and they are curious about perhaps are there any books or uh, materials, trainings that they should go on, do to get good at this, to really hone it, to get this practical application of doing it under their belt, what, what advice would you have? What could they read, get hold of? Well, I, of course, there's some good books that get you started. One is called Mind Control, How to Get Others to Do What You Want and Have Them Think It Was Their Idea. I wonder who wrote that. Oh, wait, I did. Um, Great title. And it is basically, it's a, 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 a basis of NLP in a book form. You know, and it's got a whole like 40 page thing in the back that I wrote like, you know, a little over 10 years ago now, how Barack Obama used NLP and hypnosis techniques in his road to the White House, much like Bill Clinton did, or currently at what Donald Trump did. Mm. Uh, and so it's just like how to use, it's a good basis. Gives you good intellectual information. But again, the problem with just reading a book or even watching a video is then you think you got it, but you haven't got it. Right. And you need to probably the best thing you could do is go to a training. And I would say go to a training where the trainer actually works with real life people is not afraid to work with real life people. Um, and it's and it doesn't have to take long. You know, when I first started doing the NLP trainings, they were like 20 something days. I saw them go from very short and then over the time they grew. And honestly, I think it was just about so they could justify charging more money right? Because some of the trainings would only be six hours a day. They constantly, they constantly, uh, excuse my dog's barking in the background. They constantly, um, you know, you do the same exercise four or five times, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and rather than the dogs aren't barking too loud, are they? No, no, not at all. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, that's why I wear this mic for this. It kind of blocks some of it. Uh, but so go to a training where it's hands-on, where at the beginning, as it goes onward, the trainer talks less and you do more. At the beginning, the trainer has to talk, set the, do this. But as it goes on, it sh he should talk less, you should do more. And the trainer, the other big thing I would say is it should be fast, it should be fun. There's no reason an LP training has to be over uh, five, four or five to seven days at a basic level, right? Because I don't care how good the skill set is when I'm in the, when I got you in the training room, do you practice when you go home? You know, it, 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 martial arts, uh, I, I don't know how many people I run into say, yeah, I was a black belt when I was 18. I go, okay, when was the last time you trained? When I was 19. How old are you now? 36. You're probably not a martial artist right now. You know, mm -hmm. you know, so you got to train. And that's the other thing. People go to trainings and then they don't do it. Right. And again, the other thing I always say, NLP is not a tool. I always say at the beginning of my training, if you're here thinking you're picking up a tool, get the hell out of the room. It is not a tool. You don't, oh, I'm going to do NLP now. No, it's a framework that if you're doing rational motive, if you're a regressionist, you could do regression. It's a framework that other techniques go inside of. It is not a technique. NLP has a boatload of techniques, but it's a framework. And I think that's been lost. So I hit, especially in the hypnosis world, people go, well, when do you know when to do hypnosis and, and, and or when to do NLP? I, I go, I don't have a clue because once you learn it, you're always doing NLP. So there's that. And the last thing I always stress to people, if you're going to take a training, do not be afraid to ask the trainer who his mentor is. 
If he does not have a mentor, run. <laughs> the mentor, you know, in the martial arts, my martial arts teachers say, if your if your sensei doesn't have a sensei, he's an idiot. You know, and until you get to like in your seventies or eighties, but then you should have colleagues, other people you respect. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean you totally agree with them, but you respect them. You know, uh, Richard Bandler, uh, Grinder. Now they're they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Now I totally respect what they do. I disagree with some of their methodology, but damn, they're good. Tony Robbins, you know, so I have colleagues and I have mentors that I turn to, you know, uh, one was, uh, of course he died a few years ago and hypnosis was Orman McGill. Mm. Uh, you know, so, yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I would say. And of course I would push people that are trained by the national federation of neurolinguistic programming, because that's our methodology. And I stress in our trainings that we use NLP to teach NLP. So a good trainer is doing it from day one as he's teaching it. And you should see that with the way they're using it naturally. As we look forward, you'll come from the past and go to the future and do this, this, and this. Their language should be peppered with all this stuff and they should be doing the NLP. And are they experiencing personal breakthroughs in their own life? Yeah. You know, there's nothing worse than a fat chain smoking hypnotist. And, and this is what I, I, I think is so important. And, and why, indeed, I, I wanted to give you the introduction of someone that uh, walks the walk, doesn't just talk the talk, because I think that's just so important. Um, I, I have been in the past, you know, on the Rapid Change Matters podcast, given that the focus is about helping people quickly. I have had some people say, well, hang on a second. I don't think the focus should be on the speed. Like, why should the speed be that important? Do you think there are dangers in setting out to work with people rapidly? Not really, because a lot of natural change happens instantaneous. It's that epiphany moment that they talk about. It's that, like, I'm not doing this again, you know, Uh, and then that's fast and it can be permanent. One of my friends, a guy, you know, in fact, I went in the army with him, right? We drank together. He, I had to go into treatment. He drank just like I did, you know, and here I was struggling to sober up. One day he goes, I'm quitting. And he quit. And then he still bartended for four or five years. I'm looking at it from the outside going, what the fuck is, wh- how are you doing that? He goes, I just woke up and decided this wasn't any fun anymore. And I'm like, ah, you know, and, and, but it was, that's a perfect example, right? That, well, maybe he didn't have the genetic predisposition for the drinking. You know, he was more of a substance abuser rather than substance dependence, but still it was like, boom, I'm done. And people do that all the time. Right. Again, another good change is when someone has a child, right. Uh, Women, it usually happens when they find out they're pregnant because now they're responsible, you know, and men, it usually happens when they hold their baby for the first time, their first child, the first time. Right. Because your life is over as you know it. And I don't mean that badly or goodly, but your life, and you do, and you're like, I'm responsible for another human being. And you cannot look me in the eye and say, that doesn't change you to your core like that. Right? So then when people go, oh, change takes time. Now, the only caveat to that is you may need to tweak that change. You may, you may need to, 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 to be prepared that there may be struggles along the way. You know, as we say in the addiction world, unfortunately, one of the problems with addiction recovery is a lot of your triggers 
Um, you may not know until they kick you in the nuts, right? So like right now, if, if I was working with you, Mr. Howard, to sober up, if you were at the pub a little bit too much and we get you to quit drinking, okay, this is late July, almost August. Well, guess what? You're going to have a whole bunch of triggers and things hit you at Christmas that you can't prepare for till Christmas comes. You know, when everybody's, hey, come on down, we're going to have a few. Or, hey, here's the eggnog, here's this, here's that happens all over, right? So, so then it, it, so yeah, change can happen rapidly, but always install, even when it's rapid, you're still building on it, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, when you see a good athlete and they master a skill, they never stop practicing that skill. You know, you know, Venus Williams, you know, every, every, every one of her off seasons, she spends several weeks just working on basic strokes for tennis. You know, uh, I don't know about soccer, but I do know American football. All the elite guys go back to camps to work on like how to throw a football, how to catch a football. My God, they're the best in the fucking world at what they do. Why is Tom Brady taking a court, working a week on how to hold the football? Surely. Because you're, you're, you're constantly improving. Surely, Dr. Will, you're not suggesting that NLP is more than just a certificate on a wall that you got for doing a seven-day course. <laughs> it should be, but unfortunately for some people, it's not, right? Yeah. And I tell people, fuck, if that's all you want, print your own goddamn certificate, right? I mean, it's just... It's not <laughs> Listen, I've been at events and, and held events where people have turned around and said, like, oh, do we get a certificate at the end? And uh, for me, it's, it's just never been about the certificate. It's about what you can do with the information and the knowledge that you and how you then harness it afterwards. And I, I just think that's so, so important. If people want to get a hold of you, they're liking this, this fiery attitude. They love this. They want to find out more. Where can they go? How can they get in touch? Well, they can go to uh, www.nfnlp.com, www.nfnlp.com. That's the National Federation of Neurolinguistic Programming. Uh, about the second longest continuing uh, uh, NLP group in the world. Uh, you got the society. Uh, you've got uh, the American board has kind of moved around a little bit. Uh, and there's a few others, but we've been around since the late 80s. Um, and, and again, it's fast, friendly, fun NLP. Uh, so you can always find me there. You can eat, uh, and there's an email there, nfnlp at nfnlp.com will get a hold of me and, or just Google me. I turn up, um, and I'm always open to, for questions. Um, and, and, and I'm always trying to grow and change. And my current passion is like the neurology. Here's my little brain, right? Here's my little brain, the neurology behind what we do. You know, like lately I've been looking at what's the neurology behind the law of attraction when it works? What's the neurology behind? And part of it is very simple. I'll give you a, a mm. fun go away. It's like when you talk about the law of attraction, one of the things it's based in your reticular activating system, right? If you're trying to attract something for you and you focus on it, your brain will go look for it in the real world. So we act like it's mysterious, but it's like if you want a new car, and you don't know what kind of car you want yet, and you decide you want a Mini Cooper, since your last name's Cooper, and you'll suddenly see that car everywhere you look the day before. You wouldn't notice it, right? So you've told your, now, will that attract it to you? It's much more likely, right? And so it's actually based in your neurology. It's not fucking magic. It's, act, or meta, it's somewhat metaphysical, but it's based on your brain. And then with that, 
We're just now beginning to find out there's shit your brain can do. We don't even have a clue how powerful it is yet once we tap into it. And so, you know, and, and we need to, to work on that. So that's my passion. And lately, I've decided a couple things. We talked earlier. I'm not nice to assholes anymore. And I got to tell the truth as I know it. Right. And it's going to alienate me. But as uh, Bill Clinton says, if 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 it if if there's a whole group of people that don't like you, you're probably not doing your job. Right? I like it. Because then you're if everybody likes you, then then you're nothing, you know. And so so that's that's my current thing. Well, I, I often finish with uh, this question, which is basically, listen, when you when we you, we talked about you coming on the Rapid Change Matters podcast, uh, is there anything you thought would come up, but that I just haven't asked directly? Uh, but you've just done this this wonderful way of finishing, and uh, but feel free to add to it if there's anything else that pops up. Well, well, my thing is, you know, I've been blessed beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, this stuff didn't just save my life; it gave me a life worth living. That's so important, right? And it helped fire up my passion for life. So part of me wants to give it back, and. And so I'm trying to pass this on to as many people as I can so they can take it to the next level because I have also other passions and things I like to do, right? And and so, you know, when when I go to conferences, I'm always fascinated when I go to conferences, the amount of people in our field, they get a little bit of a name, they get a little bit of a some mojo going on, and they they don't walk into other people's classes. It's almost like I have nothing to learn. And I don't know how many times I walk into a class, there's a guy, maybe he's been in hypnosis and NLP for a year or two, you know, and he's up teaching at a conference. I can be honest, sometimes I'm blown the fuck away with their enthusiasm, with their insights, because they're new at it. And I got to get my fucking ego out of the way to go, wow, I never thought of that. Right? You know, you've been in it two years, I've been in it 38, but you may have a different insight. Right. And I need to keep that ego in check. And ego is easing God out or easing greatness out. Because when you look at the true masters, they're always learning. Right. And and in my case, the more I learn and know, the more I realize I've just scratched the surface. Right. And I don't know where it's going to take me. And my current last thing I've been saying a lot lately, it comes from a book. I think the guy's uh, I forget his name. but it's like, and you know, I want this so much. It's like, I'm going to fight like the third monkey on the ramp of Noah's Ark. And brother, it's starting to rain. You know, there's in third place is not where you want to be. <laughs> and and so that's that's what I've been working on. So, I, I, I love it. Well, thank you for joining us. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And there's, there's so many little bits to, to mull over and to take away and to think about. So I'm looking forward to going back and re-listening to this one as well. Uh, thank Dr. Will Horton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested? And even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change matters hyphen podcast. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those upcoming live events that will help you hone those change work skills.